<laughs> want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with us to 2 Peter chapter 1, our second in a series on the book of 2 Peter. Today we're going to be in verses 5 to 11, and follow along, I'm just going to read the first uh, couple, three verses, 5 to 7 right now, and I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version as we begin. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, you're giving us some great challenge and great opportunity to experience the knowledge and the character of who you are. Open our eyes to that. May we understand clearly what you would have for us to do with and through our lives as we walk out of these doors, knowing that you have a desire for us to conform us to your image, and these are characteristics that the Spirit of God desires so desperately to create and develop within us. Help us to submit to that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think as I read through those first few verses, probably the thing that is noticeable to me is that the command here is relative to the verses 3 and 4 that we saw last week, which are not a command but a description of what God has done for us. God's divine power has given us all things that lead to godliness, verse 3 said. And then he says, for this reason... Make every effort yourself to be godly. Now, don't miss the connection here. I, I think the, the King James probably does miss it or doesn't define it quite so boldly. But it's since God has given you power for godliness, strive to be godly. This is the heart of New Testament ethics, how are you pleasing to God? How is it that you can live a life in this world that is pleasing to God and a blessing to those around you? It's because God has given you the power to be that. It's not that you have it in and of yourself. We labor for virtue because God has already labored for us and it is God who is at work in us. Don't reverse that order. You'll get into trouble theologically and practically. Don't find yourself saying, I will work out my salvation in order that God might work in me. No. Say with the Apostle Paul, I work out my salvation for it is God who works in me both to will and to do his good pleasure. Never say, I press on to make it my own in order that Christ might make me his own. No. You say again with Paul in Philippians 3, I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. A whole different motivation, isn't there? One says, I have to do this in order for God to work on my behalf. The other says, I do this because God is working on my behalf. Don't reverse that. Let me give you a little illustration of that. There's a world of difference in a marriage when the husband doubts the love of his wife and therefore he labors to earn it. 
and the marriage where the husband rests in the confidence and the certainty of his wife's love. And so he takes pains to joyfully live in such a way that he's not unworthy of her love. You see the difference? Peter's point is God is for us. It's his divine power at work in us. And we can be certain of that. Now, in the confidence of that power, for this reason, take pains to not live unworthily of his love. In verse 5 through 7, I think we see a very forward-looking faith. It describes how we should be living. And there are eight things that he mentions in these few verses. He mentions faith and virtue, virtue being moral excellence or fortitude, He mentions knowledge, self-control, steadfastness or patience. He mentions godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And the list begins with faith. It ends with love. And I think that agrees with the, the New Testament description of our life in Christ. Confidence in God's promises, which is faith, is the way that we plug into God's power. And then love, even for our enemies, yes, that's the goal. It's the sum of life. Our love is the light that the world sees that shows others the way into his kingdom. Now, between faith and love, there are six other qualities that we should have. And I don't think that they are so much added to our character in this specific sequence, and by that I mean there's some overlapping qualities. As it says, add, you know, patience. Well, love is already in patience, isn't it? If you don't have any love, you won't be patient. That's a reality. And so I think what Peter is saying in verses 5 to 7 is this. True Christians do not stop pursuing grace. They go on. They continue to add to it. They advance They apply to themselves with diligence in order to increase in these things. So Peter is really saying, don't be satisfied where you're at. Don't ever think you've reached a plateau at which you can camp out on. In the Christian life, it just doesn't work that way. Literally, the translation of verse 5 and 7 does not say, add to your faith virtue and so on. A literal translation would say, furnish in your faith virtue, and so on. And so there's this kind of a momentum that keeps moving forward, forward, forward in your faith, forward in your growth, forward in your knowledge of God, forward in your expression of who He is. So we might translate it like this. As you have attained faith in Christ, stand in it. And apply yourself diligently to advance in moral excellence. And as you stand in that, don't be satisfied, but press on to increase in your knowledge of God's will. And as you stand in that, do not be satisfied, but be diligent to enlarge your capacity of self-control and mastery of your passions. And as you stand in that, don't be satisfied, but cultivate every form of patience and serenity. And in that, let devoutness and piety and sweet love to God flourish. And in that, strive to kindle your affection for other believers. And in that, and through it all, grow in love to all men. You get the sense of what he's saying? 
In other words, move forward. Move on. Press on. And there's a reason that that is so important. Let me illustrate it. There's a book entitled Glenda's Long Swim. It uh, tells a story, true story, of Glenda and Robert Lennon who were four miles off of the coast of Florida, and they were fishing from their yacht. Glenda decided that she would take a swim, and so she dove into the water, but didn't realize that there was a tide, and pretty soon she was moving away from the boat faster than she could deal with, and so she yelled out, and Robert heard her, and without thinking, he dove in right in after her, and as he reached her, he realized that now they were both being taken away from the boat at a pace that they couldn't retrieve. Robert was a champion swimmer. Glenda was not, and so they made a plan. Robert would pursue the boat and keep it in sight until the tide changed and he could close the gap. Glenda would save her strength and just stay there and float, and Robert would come back for her when he was able to get to the boat. They fought, he fought the tide for six hours. The boat was just about over the horizon when the tide changed and he was able to finally begin to close the gap. He got on the boat, and, but his searching was futile. He couldn't find her. The next day, there were others that came out in search, and they found her 20 miles away, still alive. An incredible story. But now, don't get lost in the story. It's an illustration of this. Christians who just float along in their Christian life, thinking they're staying in the same place, aren't. They don't. If we disobey verses 5 to 7 and don't exercise diligence to bear the fruit of faith, we drift into great peril. We have to work just to stand still. Do you see that? The tide of temptation will drift us away if we're not careful. And so the effort here of virtue and knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, they are not dispensable icing on the cake of faith. They're imperatives. They're so important to our life. If Robert had not swum with all his might, the yacht would have likely gone out of sight and he and his wife would have drowned. It's somebody said, we don't judge a person's genuineness by how close they are to heaven but by how hard they are stroking. You see, the evidence that God's power has been given you by faith is that you are now making every effort, as verse 5 says, to advance in the qualities of Christ. Verse 8 makes a very clear warning. It says, For if these things are yours and abound, they keep you from being ineffectual and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember from back in verse 2, that is the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge. That knowledge can be barren and fruitless knowledge. It's possible to start out in a Christian life, but then become indifferent, become unfeeling, become careless in using the grace of God, and we drift off into destruction. Second Peter 2 or, yeah, 2.20 says, If after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, 
our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They are again entangled in them and overpowered. The last state has become worse for them than the first. If the knowledge of God's glorious promises don't spur us on to do all that we can against that tide, then we will be barren, we will be fruitless, and we will drift ultimately to spiritual destruction. You see, there's some consequences. I'm using the word swimming to tie your mind together to the story to help impact, imprint in your mind the illustration but verse 9 describes what has happened in the person who quits swimming and is not pressing forward in these qualities. For whoever lacks these things, the things that we've read about in verse 5 to 7, that person is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. You see, the problem with this person that is not striving to bear fruit consistent with godliness is that they are blind, and they're blind in two directions. When they look to the future, it's nothing more than a haze. The promises of God are swallowed up. They're lost in a blur of worldly longings. It's so easy to get that place when we get so consumed with attaining and achieving and acquiring and we forget the means of doing that is verses 5 to 7. And if we're not pursuing verses 5 to 7, we will lose sight of eternity. We will lose sight of the promise that God has in store for us. It'll just be a someday pie in the sky kind of idea somewhere out there. It won't drive us. It won't motivate us. And that's a danger to that blindness. But there's another blindness, and that's looking back at the past and forgetting that we have been forgiven a great debt. Remember when you received Christ into your life and you realized that your sin was done away with. Your sin was forgiven. The price of eternity apart from God was gone. You were now in his presence. You now had eternal life instead of eternal separation. And you remember the glory and the pleasure, the joy of your salvation? David praised that. Return to me the joy of my salvation. That moment when it struck me that I no longer bore the, the weight and the guilt and the burden of my sin. What a thought. What a delight. But if you're not living in light of verses 5 to 7, that'll just be a distant memory. Not so critical to my life today. Blindness it becomes meaningless our Christian life. It becomes ritualistic. Seeing a baptism, you go, oh, that's nice. Instead of acknowledging that this is a testimony of a life transformed, a life that was bound for hell that has been turned about, and rejoicing with that person as we sit around the communion table and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Oh, it's just the thing that we do every month. Yeah. Yeah, here we got to do it again. Oh, this sure is boring. Instead of acknowledging that Christ sacrificed his life for us, and because of that sacrifice, we've been forgiven. We don't bear the penalty. The penalty's been erased on our account. It's not held against us. We have the likeness of Christ living through us, his power. 
Godliness. As in verse 3, the power of godliness throws, flows through the knowledge of God. So in verse 9, blindness to the past and the future work of God blocks the power and it leaves us limp in the water, drifting wherever it will take us ultimately to destruction. I think verse 10 makes it very clear what's at stake with this blindness. And this is something we need to pay attention to. Being blind, being spiritually powerless and spiritually fruitless. It says, therefore, brethren, be more zealous to confirm your calling and election. Well, that's an interesting phrase, Peter. Why are you throwing that out? You're talking to Christians here. You're writing to the church. Be more zealous to confirm your call and election. The danger described here in verses 8 and 9... I think are incentives to advance in the fruits of faith. And the danger is not of slipping into the kingdom without a reward. You know, sometimes I think we could say that's all right. As long as I get into heaven, that's fine for me. And we miss the opportunity of earning, working towards the wreath, the, the, the rewards that we will lay at his feet. And you will have nothing to lay at his feet. And I, sometimes I think, well, that's, that's sad to not have something, but, but at least I'll be there. And that's not what Peter's talking about. It's not the danger of not having something to offer as a reward. It's the danger of not being there, not being saved. When he says, be zealous to confirm your call and election, he means that our lack of diligence in the Christian graces may be a sign that we were never called and are not among the elect. That's a frightening thought. Now, however you have been taught on this matter of election, give close attention to what he says here in these verses. The assumption is that the whole world lies under the righteous judgment of God because of sin. But because of God's great mercy, he ordained that a people for his own would be saved by his grace. These are his elect, his chosen, the ones that, that we've been quoting about, the ones who are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And Paul explains in Romans 8 that those elect whom he predestined to be like Christ... He called, and those he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. None of God's sheep will ever be lost. They are eternally secure. But from our side, the most important question of life is this. Am I among those who God called and predestined to be like Christ? And then calls and justifies and glorifies forever. Am I among them? And you need to ask yourself that question right where you sit. If we are among them, God wants you to know and to be assured that you are. He wants you to have that joyful assurance. For out of that assurance flows a tremendous power for sacrificial service that gives him glory. Let me talk about this assurance. Assurance comes to us through this process of sanctification. So Peter says, confirm your election. 
Make sure of it. How? Well, by standing in your faith and pressing on in virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. That's how you do it. John said in 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. How do you know it? Because of what's going on in your life. Because there's been a transformation of your desires and your thoughts and your pursuits. The confirmation of your election is your progress in sanctification. The confirmation of your election is your progress in sanctification. God predestined all the elect to be conformed to the image of his son, Christ Jesus. Therefore, the reassuring evidence of our election is Christ-likeness. Makes sense, doesn't it? So verse 10 and 11 concludes, if you do these things, referring back to verses 5 to 7, you will never fall. So there are will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Virtue, knowledge of God, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. These are not the wages that we pay to earn entrance into the kingdom, but they are the necessary evidence that our trust in God's promise is genuine. And in that way, they become the confirmation of our call and our election. So let's make some application to the lessons of this lesson to ourselves. Because I think the point of verses 5 to 11 is that we should earnestly confirm our call and election by what? Making every effort to advance in the qualities of Christ. So we need to ask ourselves the question, am I making every effort? And really, you could go down each line item. I won't do all of them this morning, but am I making every effort towards moral excellence? All right. This is the principle. You have to make the personal application. There's probably not a one-size-fits-all but if you are progressing in moral excellence, it's going to affect what you view, what you listen to, who you associate with. Because if they are taking you in that drift pattern away from the things of God, if they are minimizing the things that God dislikes, then you are drifting away from moral excellence instead of progressing towards moral excellence. Are you increasing in moral excess? Are you making every effort to increase in your knowledge of God's character and His will for you? Well, there's only one way you're going to do that. That's going to be spending time in His Word. Spending time getting to know Him. You do that in your private time, in your... Uh, devotion time, maybe together as a family, being in His Word. You're going to do that by showing up for Sunday school and investing time into the Word of God, getting into a Bible study, investing time in the Word of God, being right here so that you are investing time learning and being challenged and directed in the things of God. You've got to grow in the knowledge, and the knowledge reveals His character. His character reveals His purpose, His will. 
and you will begin to walk in conformance to that? Are you making every effort to cultivate godliness, developing a heart for God? Are you making every effort to enlarge your capacity for patience? Are you making every effort to grow in your affections towards other believers particularly? You see, if these things are in you and increasing, you will not be fruitless, verse 8 says. You will never stumble, verse 10 says. And you will enter the eternal kingdom of Christ, says verse 11. But if these things are not your earnest concern, then it's because you have shut your eyes to the beauty of God's promises. And you've forgotten to humble, that humble exhilaration of being forgiven. And so the Word of God warns us against being lazy in our faith, drifting away from Jesus Christ as our only hope. Let me give you some verses. 1 Timothy 6, 12 and 19 encourages us to fight the good fight of faith. Take hold on eternal life. Hebrews 12, 1 says, Lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily encumbers and run with perseverance the race before us. Philippians 3, press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Advance, grow, move forward in virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, 2 Peter 1, 5-7. And in this way, you will reassure your heart and make confident in yourself that you are indeed called by God, that you're going to share in His glory and share in His excellence. So I have a question for you. Have we raised some concern? Have we raised some concern for your eternal safety? Has the Holy Spirit used this to convict you in the direction of your life? Don't push that concern aside. It may well be that God, in His love, is drawing you, is convicting you so that He can bring you to Himself in faith. So the question is, will you respond to Him in faith? First of all, to receive Him as Savior and Lord, realizing that there is nothing that you can do of your own accord to enter into His presence and His relationship with Him. Will you accept the price that he paid in sacrificing his son on the cross to bear your sin and the consequences of your sin on his own body on the cross and invite him to live in you and live through you? This is what he's talking about. The power of God alive in you. It's not you doing these things of your own accord. It's God working through you, and you saying, yes, Lord, I will respond in faith in this action, in this thought process, in this motivation. And in that, we please him. Would you bow your heads with me and let God speak to you? Father, I pray that you would use these words to help us do just what Peter has prescribed, that we would confirm our election and our call that we would evaluate the motives of our heart and our life, that we would determine whether we're living for self or if we're living to please you, if we're growing in these graces 
And Lord, if we come to the conclusion in honesty that no, that's not the direction and motivation of our heart, I pray that we would submit that to you right now in these moments. Confessing our sin. Inviting you to save us, to change us, to live in and through us. And if that's what you need to do this morning where you're sitting, a simple prayer in the privacy of your heart and mind before the Lord saying something like, God, I understand that I am a sinner and my motives are selfish. They're not about you, they're about me. I understand that the consequence of that is eternal separation from you. And so right now I understand that Jesus died and paid the price so that I could live for you. I receive him into my life right now. Live in me. Make me that new person that lives to please you. Then give him thanks for that. If you're a believer and you're sitting here this morning and you're evaluating your life and your direction and you're saying, no, I haven't made every effort to move towards moral excellence. I've not made every effort to be patient. I've not made every effort to walk in the knowledge of God and to grow in that, to build affection for other believers. I've lived my own life my own way, but I understand that I need to submit to God's direction this morning. Would you express that to him? If there's a specific area that we've addressed, would you tell him that? Father, I pray that you would, by your grace, give us the will and the desire to go forward in virtue and knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. That we would confirm by the direction of our life, not by the perfections of our life, we realize that sanctification is a continual process that won't be complete until we see you face to face, but Lord, give us grace to continue today to grow in each of these areas, to be mature, to be accountable to one another, to encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. Help us to walk in godliness in this present day, we pray in Jesus' name. I invite you to stand together and sing a song of commitment, saying, Lord, my life, my desire, my direction, I'm going to submit to you. I've heard you, I love you, and I want to be drawn close to you. Let's sing that together. I am thine, O Lord, I have heard thy voice and hold my love to me. But I long to rise in the arms of faith and be closer drawn to Thee. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where Thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to Thy precious bleeding side. 
Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord, by thy power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope, and my will be lost in thine. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. If you have some questions, would like to talk with somebody about some of the things that we've talked about today, want, to, want you to know we're available after the service or even during the week. If you want to make a call and set up a time, be more than glad to sit down and meet with you and look at the Word of God and pray together with you. Brother Jim Henry, would you ask the Lord's blessing as we're dismissed this morning, please? <laughs>